So in Genesis 19, in the previous chapter, we had this occasion where the angel of the Lord had come and met with Abraham, and uh, he had received the promise of the coming son, told that Sarah would uh, have a child uh, within the next year, and uh, then the discussion moved to the destruction of Sodom that was coming. And Abram goes through that great negotiation with the Lord uh, and finally settles on if there are 10 people within the community of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord will spare uh, the city for the sake of of the ten, and they depart to go on their way. And when we come to chapter 19, uh, the angel of the Lord is not with them, only the two angels. Now the two angels came to Sodom, verse 1, in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, if we look back across Lot, there was that occasion where he and his uncle Abraham had grown in their uh, numbers, each family, uh, Lot's herdsmen, his family, all of his servants were so numerous in his flocks that he couldn't dwell with Abraham. Abraham had his household grow in the same way, and they needed to part company in order to preserve the peace, particularly amongst their workers. And so uh, Abraham had given Lot the choice of where do you want to go? And he saw the fertile Jordan Valley, and he chose to go down there with all of his livestock and household. And it says right within the verse, that he pitched his tents towards Sodom. So he immediately gravitates toward this very sinful city. Then we see him moving into the city. And now when we read that Lot was sitting in the gate, that isn't just that he was sitting at the entryway. In fact, uh, sometimes it was near the entryway to the city. But what's being said is that he was in a position of power in the leadership of this community. Sitting in the gate of Sodom means that he was you know, amongst those who were the rulers over the city. He, he was there deciding court cases. He was there uh, processing people's marriages and divorces and land purchases and exchanges. So he is a man that has moved into a position of very powerful influence. And that's not just speculation. We're going to hear the people of Sodom actually say things about that as we move into this passage. So he's a man of influence. Now, as a man of influence, when he sees these two angels arrive, which we're going to see they very much just appear as human beings, he bows his face to the ground. He automatically understands their authority and their position. There is something about their demeanor that leaves him in a place of awe, and he bows himself reverentially to them. Verse 2, he said, Here now, my lords, kiriosk, masters, those that would rule over me, please turn into your servant again, subjugating himself 
to them, your servant's house, and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. He's very much trying to move them through the community. He does not want them to dwell there. And he's going to talk more about that. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. Now, when you get to the New Testament, a lot of this culture is still in place. We read about Mary and Joseph coming to the inn and there was no room for them there. The inn in this setting and in Mary and Joseph's day is the center of town, and there are rooms, but you and I would think of them more as stalls. So usually it was round, sometimes it was rectangular or square, but it was a large open area that had these individual chambers where you could put your livestock and your family into it, pen everybody in for the night, come out, usually a fire or several fires in the middle for people to cook and have common fellowship uh, together. The open city square in the center of town was a place that was run like an inn and you could stay there. Not anything like we think in, you know, you're trying to get the five-star rating and, you know, ground floor and not, you know, how hard are your beds. It's nothing like that. Okay, This is very primitive, very ancient in our understanding. He, they're going to be in the open square. Now, he insisted strongly, verse 3, so they turned in to him and entered his house. He's going to actually tell us why in just a moment. Then he made them a feast, baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. That's a leftover of the very polite and very poetic King James Version. They aren't speaking in such flowering terms. They're literally saying, they're literally saying, bring those men out here so that we can rape them. There's there's no wondering about their intentions in what they're saying. They're going to forcibly sodomize these men. That's what's being said. As cruel and as harsh as that is, that's what's being described. Now you know why we have Sunday school. There are certain subjects covered in this adult Bible study that it would be difficult to work your way through with younger people in this room. We've specifically designed a study for them that they're going to enjoy and not walk home and torment you in the car with very difficult questions. But these are subjects we need to cover in the culture that we're dealing with, in the world that is around us. We need to look straight into the Scripture and understand what the Word of God wants us to understand. The confusion that is outside our faith. 
the whole of the world around us that has begun to drift and move. I've combated this verbally for years. In the early 90s, this term started popping up, hate speech. Hate speech. To simply say a thing is right or wrong started to be addressed as hate speech. We've moved to that place now where the transgender community, and let me be clear one more time, I love them with all my heart, want to minister to them, want to reach them with the same love Christ reached me with, delivering me from my sin. I want to see them experience the same thing. But to simply say, listen, now to simply say of a man who dresses as a woman that he is not a woman, he is in fact a man, is hate speech. You can literally get in trouble. You can be fired from your job. You can be put under correction in your employment for that, forced to see a psychologist for counseling. Just a few hundred miles away in Canada, they have arrested, arrested people and taken them to court for using the wrong pronoun. Literally saying he rather than she. This is where our culture is at. It has abandoned the author of life's definitions. It has embraced its own opinions over the truth of God's word. And we are horribly adrift. I make suggestions. I I made suggestions in the early 90s that we were going to end up in this place where hate speech was a crime and people were like, you're really going too far with this. And here we are. I'm telling you right now, this is going to continue to drift. And when people are wanting to marry animals, right? I, I say that now, people are like, this guy is so crazy. Once you move the lines, they never stop moving. Once you redefine things, listen, in this town, we had a wedding here yesterday. Young couple called and asked if they could have their wedding here because the Lutheran church in town refused to allow their wedding to occur there because they they have to submit whatever sermon is going to be preached in their church has to be submitted in writing. And because they referred to marriage as being the union formed by God between one man and one woman in the ceremony, can't have the wedding there. This is your town. This is your community. This is your nation. If, if, if Christians don't wake up to what's going on around us, And I'm not talking about becoming radical or violent or anything ungodly in any way. If we don't stand up for the truth, then we're going to continue to deteriorate. Jesus Christ said we are the salt and the light of the world. Listen, he wasn't just talking about how we add flavor and lend illumination. Okay, Light brings life without Light, life doesn't occur. 
That's not just in the vegetation world. There are great studies being done in locations where there is no light for six months of the year and the lack of procreation amongst human beings. They're realizing that the light stimulates in the human body the reproduction of human beings. Light equals life. Light is life. Salt. Salt, yes, it lends flavor. It was a preservative in Jesus' day. It was used. There was no refrigeration. If if you bought meat, you cooked it in salt water and hung it to dry, preserving the meat for many, many months. Salt was used to preserve everything. It was the number one antibiotic and the number one antiseptic used in every single setting. We are the salt of the world. We are the light of the world. We keep the decomposition from occurring and we provide life to the world around us. Jesus said, if that salt loses its savor, what good is it for? It's trash. It's worth nothing. Just throw it away, is what he said. The church losing its savor, its saltiness, becoming useless to the world, wringing its hands and sitting around and saying, it's not my place to say anything. Then what good are we? Are we going to just sit around, hold hands, sing songs, feel good when we're with one another? The purpose for our faith was much broader than that. This man has come to the place where now it is invading his home. Now, there are those that say, no, homosexuality was not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they point to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, that says, look, the Lord speaking to Israel. This was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Now, if that isn't the epitome of America, I don't know what is. Okay. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now, notice it doesn't say give the poor and needy a free handout. It says strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty. And they always missed this. And committed abominations before me. The Lord lists homosexuality as an abomination. As he does adultery, as he does gossip, as he does thievery, as he does lying. Okay? So this idea that God isn't including this act where they've come to rape these men in his judgment, that's false. It absolutely is part of the failure. Back in Genesis 19, looking at verse 6 to continue, we read, So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now. I have two daughters who have not known a man. 
please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Boy, there are a few things to look at there. The first of which is, <clears throat> to be a woman in this day was harsh, to say the least. The best understanding when you read the scripture and you see that sacrificial attitude that he has about his daughters, understand this, it's the word of God that has changed that attitude about women, not our culture. And when we hear people talking about how, you know, the word of God oppresses women, that it treats them like chattel, like they were slaves. No, it was the word of God and the illumination of men's hearts from the word of God that caused men to stand up in our culture and say, this is incorrect. To look at this man right here and say, that is a Middle Eastern practice developed by the pagans, not men of God. That men of God were adopting the practices of the pagans, where women were worthless, and men were the only thing of value. Here, the Middle Eastern practice is when you bring a guest into your home, they are your responsibility, even their safety. If Lot had allowed for something bad to happen to these men, the next day he could have been brought into court and literally put to death. These men were in his house, they were under his care, they were his responsibility. Middle Eastern culture. With that, Women are demeaned and of no value, so he's willing to sacrifice his daughters to the situation. Again, Middle Eastern cultural practice, not biblical understanding of the value of life and the value of women. You know, I hear people within Christianity say things like, yes, but even in the New Testament, Paul is telling women that they should submit to their own husbands. Correct? Absolutely true. He says that they should submit to their own husbands so that there's leadership in the home. He does not say women are inferior to men and women should submit to all men. I would encourage you to make note of Proverbs chapter 31. Take your time and read that Old Testament chapter of the Bible and see that that woman there in the Old Testament has her own business. She has her own employees. She buys land on her own with her own money without consulting her husband. Now her husband is blessed and trusts her but the Old Testament is showing that women are elevated to the place of even leadership within the community. right? How about Deborah, who was the prophetess over the nation of Israel and led the nation into victory? Now, I love Deborah as an example because she says to the men of Israel, 
you're going to want to take the leadership role here. Because if you don't, a woman is going to be remembered for this victory rather than you. If you don't take the role. And everybody goes, right, Deborah led them to victory. No, it was actually a woman on top of the tower who threw a millstone off and slammed the leader of the opposing army in the head and killed him. Because men didn't take the leadership role. Why? Because of the abundance of idleness and the fullness of bread. Laziness. Weakness. Ladies, wouldn't it be wonderful to be surrounded by men who loved the Lord so adamantly that they were gentlemen in every area of life? Leading with gentlety and kindness. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place everywhere you went? I'm, uh, you know, old school. My mom was born in 1938. She taught me a lot of things along the way. You open the door for women, right? It's interesting to me. I get to travel, go to places. I was just in New York this past week. You stop, reach out, open the door for women. And they, like, step to the side. They get a defensive posture as they go by you. Like you're about to do something bad to them. No, ma'am, I'm just opening the door for you. Isn't that what we're hearing all this week? The assumption of the wickedness of men. The assumption. Men are wicked, and they do need to be put under scrutiny. And questions do need to be answered. But to assume that a man of God is wicked, that's where our culture has come. Why? Because our culture has abandoned God's word. It's literally, as the prophet said, they've thrown it over their shoulder. They want nothing to do with it. Here, how unfortunate. He offers up his daughters. I wonder what the girls would have thought of that inside the house terrible terrible thing that this is even written in the scripture you know this is the reason he says let me bring them out to you do to them as you wish only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof this is this is why the violent militant homosexual community is why Lot insisted these men have to come to my house. He understood, oh, you You can't stay in the open square. You need to come to my house where we can lock the door, where you'll be safe. They said, stand back. Then they said, this one, notice this, came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now, We will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. This one, right? He isn't of them. He is actually a godly man. And it's part of the reason that he's risen to the place of authority. Because he has the common sense of God's word in his heart and in his mind. You know, I just had a conversation over the past couple of days with some people that don't know the Lord. And as I'm trying to help them in the very difficult circumstances that they find themselves, 
I'm just relaying. I'm not. I'm not even preaching to them. Just good friends sharing the truth of God's word with them about their difficult situation, and and they are not accepting it because they don't know God's word. So as they try to share the wisdom of God's word, dealing with a very foolish man that they've had to deal with and all this difficulty that he's created in their life, trying to help them see what the word of God has to say about dealing with a fool and how to be wise. And, and they can't grasp it because they don't know and trust God's word. Within this setting, Lot shows up and he has the wisdom of God in his heart and mind, taught to him by his uncle Abraham. He rises to this position of power and see what they're saying? He keeps acting like a judge. He, he sits in the gate of the city as a ruler over them, and they resent it. They hate it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. We try to share our faith with people. We try to share the truth of God's word with people. Oh, don't be deceived. They are going to, at first opportunity, turn and attack you for your faith. They'll be kind and hospitable on the front end. But there is an us and them in the world. Love them. Love them. Pray for your enemies, right? Do good to those who spitefully use you. I'm not talking about building a wall between us and them. But understand, there is an us and them. If we're trying to be friends with the world, then in the book of James we are warned. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses that do you not know to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God. Lot has been steadily moving in this direction like the world, like the stuff of the world, like the materialism of the world, like the money of the world, right? That's literally the direction that Lot is going. Let's, let's go to where the grass is greener. Let's go to where the flocks can flourish. Let's make more money. Let's prosper. You know what? Doing business with Sodom and Gomorrah. They're always buying my product. I'm always selling. You know what? I, I probably ought to just move into Sodom. I probably ought to. You know, why am I even a herdsman? I can make money right here. I can just take my money and make money with my money. Moves into a place of leadership and influence, and the people resent him for it. They're not godly. Verse 10. The men, meaning the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were on the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. I don't know about you, but if I have set out of my house with wicked intentions in my heart. And I've found the location where I'm going to do the bad things. And I set about doing those bad things. And then suddenly, angels appear and strike me with blindness. Game over. It's time to go home. You know what I mean? I just, 
Why continue? And yet they weary themselves still trying to find the door. It seems absurd, but don't throw the idea away yet. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 4 through 16 say, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. This is actually what was originally meant with no rest for the wicked. Meaning they're not going to rest until they've done their wickedness. You read that and think, I don't even know if I can believe that. That seems absurd. Do you not know people or maybe you were a person who was experiencing all the pain of your sin and you continued? The destruction was clear, right? In the beginning, it was only clear to you. And then it got clear to the people around you. And then it became clear to everyone. They could see what was going on. And you just continue? Continue in it? No, that's not far-fetched at all. These people are given over to their debauchery. Completely. Blind, so what? They'll continue on. They'll continue on in it. 19.12 Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. In chapter 18, when that negotiation between Abraham and the Lord took place, would you spare it for 50, 45? 40, 30, 20, 10. The Lord says, if there are 10, I'll spare it. That's where he stops. And says, okay, 10. Why? Because we're going to see that he has sons-in-law. So that's plural, at least two. So that's other daughters. He's got two daughters at home, his wife and himself. That's eight. Abraham's thinking, uh, there's got to be. They've at least shared their faith with two other people. Lot must have a Bible study in his home. There's got to be at least 10 in the city. What are there? As far as we can tell, eight. The outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. I would ask you to put your bookmark right there in Genesis. Go hard to the right, all the way to the end of the book. You'll find Revelation chapter 8, last book in the Bible, verse 1. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That uh, is there to show you how severe the circumstances are that are about to unfold in the book of Revelation. We don't read that anywhere else in all of the scripture, that all of heaven falls silent. I mean, have you ever been in a place where it's boisterous and clamoring and kind of loud and something happens that's jarring and everyone goes silent in the room? 
all attention turns to that one thing. That's what you're looking at here. Something so dramatic is taking place. Heaven goes silent for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them was given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And notice this. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. One more time, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are a saint. Okay, This whole classification of super special believers that have, you know, miracles attributed to them. That's something that the Roman Catholic institution has invented. The Bible refers to anyone who is trusting Jesus Christ for salvation as a saint. We say that, right? I ain't no saint. Oh, yes, you are. I assume you're sitting in this room believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. That makes you a saint. Your prayers make it to the throne of God. They don't funnel through St. Peter. They don't pass through St. Barnabas. It isn't Mary who receives them. Here they go to the Lord. The smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. Back in chapter 19 of Genesis at verse 13 again. We will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. God hears our prayers. The good ones and the bad ones. Right? We're told in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit lends his help to us when we simply groan. The Spirit interprets that to God. Have you ever been in that situation? Where one more time, the trouble is right there in your life and you just go, oh. You aren't even saying, oh dear Lord, please help me in these circumstances. This is how detailed and attentive God is to our circumstances. It doesn't feel like that here on earth a lot of the time, does it? As we call out and we pray and we pray and we pray, it's almost as though, is he listening to me? His Ears are wide open to our prayers. You say, then why? Why the evil? Are you not looking around? Are you not seeing how bad things are? We are told by Peter that God is allowing those things to go on so that people will come to know him. Not the bad things being his desire, repentance God wants people. That's why he lets things go on. So that people will turn their hearts to him. That's why he's patient. God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Back in chapter 19, at verse 14, So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, plural, who had married his daughters, plural, and said, Get up. Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed 
to be joking, right? Have you shared your faith with people and they just treat you like a joke? This guy, just too much, man. Just ridiculous. Not ridiculous. God is going to fulfill his word. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Remember, church, that in the previous chapter, the Lord began that chapter by saying, it is not proper for me to do what I'm about to do without informing my servant Abraham. And then what was it that unfolded? Abraham then sends to God, it would be wicked of you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And the negotiations begin. What if there are 50? What if there are 45? What if there are 40, 30, 20, 10? It, it is something God is saying. I want to inform believers of my character. It would be improper of me to not show them my personality. So I'll go to Abraham and I will show Abraham my personality. And it even says in chapter 18 that he would teach all of the subsequent generations of his character, God's character. What is God's character in that setting? He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. God is going to return to the clouds and he's going to snatch the church off from the earth. That term snatching away was the word harpazo. It was later translated to the word raptus in Latin, which became the English word rapture. This isn't a new teaching that the church has invented in the 1800s. This is something the church has believed all throughout its history, that Jesus Christ is going to descend to the clouds. Read again, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, extending through verse 18, with the voice of an archangel, the trump of God, and he will cause the dead to rise and gather into the sky with him and the saints of the church to be gathered up to him. And it says, and they will forever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church is what we're looking forward to. This right here, the character of God. Is it right that I would not teach Abraham, the father of the faith, my character, that I will not destroy the wicked and the righteous together? And then they come to the city. And there's not enough there to spare the city. So what does God do? He snatches them out of the city. He takes them by the hand and removes them. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Notice this. 
do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Small principle contained within the account. Very often, when we have not been living out the will of the Lord in our lives, and suddenly the Lord appears in our life and drags us into his will, when we're looking at the choices that are to be made, we look at his will for our lives as somehow being evil. We were already not living in his will. He came and rescued us out of that. And now that we're being delivered and God is speaking to us very clearly, all right, I've gotten you out of the mess, and I want you to go over there. We go, I can't go over there. It'll kill me. <laughs> That's often our perception. Following his will is always better. Verse 20, see now, the city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. It's not a big city like that wicked place Sodom. Let me go to the small city. Please, let me escape there, for it's a little one, and my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have found favor. Uh, I have favor, excuse me. You, I can't read right now. See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city, for which you have spoken. It almost sounds like he's saying, I was going to, but for your sake I won't. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Again, the Lord can't bring his judgment upon the wicked until the righteous are in safety. The Lord is returning for his church. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar, which means a little one. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew, I underlined that word, these cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and they grew that and what grew on the ground. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, there's a passage most of us are familiar with. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Verse 25, so he overthrew those cities. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, he overturned the tables. Same word, same phraseology. He flipped over Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed them utterly. It wasn't just a matter of them experiencing this falling of the fire and brimstone. It is a matter of utter destruction. Where it's located, according to the scripture, is now the lowest place on earth. Genesis 19, verse 26. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. It would seem that the fire and brimstone fell upon her and encased her 
and salt is what's being described. Two passages to close. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The looking behind Lot, the way it's written in the Hebrew language, seems to indicate she was in front of Lot as they were fleeing and stopped and turned around looking behind him at the city. And it seems that how it's written is she was longing for the city. It wasn't just even the idea of, I want to see what's going to happen to the city, or, oh my goodness, the city's being destroyed. It was that idea of whatever her heart was attached to in the city, she looked back longingly to it, and it cost her her life. The passage in John is telling us to not love the world or the things of the world. They're all dying. The things of the world are passing away. It's only the Lord, His Word, which is eternal. The memory verse for this week, Luke chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus speaking said, Remember Lot's wife. We need to be people who are sober of mind, who understand the wickedness of the world around us. And while the Lord has called us to be in the world, we are told to not be of the world. We're ambassadors of another kingdom. We represent a king. We're here to preach that message, to grab people, if necessary, by the hand and deliver them out of the coming destruction. Without question, where you want to put the rapture of the church, that's debatable. I get that. You can't say that the scripture doesn't teach the rapture of the church. You want to put the rapture someplace else? Okay. Based on what I'm seeing here, what I see all through the scripture, the rapture of the church is going to occur before the wrath of God falls. But regardless, regardless, the wrath of God is coming to the world. The wrath of God is coming. You know, people talking, you know, global climate change. You know, talking about the earth and all the things that are going on and trying to blame it on this or that, say it is true, it isn't true. I can't argue against any of that. What I can say is the moral atmosphere of the world is changing. Without question. It is more and more violent every single day. It is more and more destructive every single day. I mean, you know, the issue of environment, I'm very willing to have that discussion. I'm a conservationist myself. I think Christians should be the ones who are the most responsible with God's creation. I'm not arguing that point at all. I just understand it is a debatable subject. 
What I want to get to are those two points I just made. God's wrath is not debatable. It's coming. His wrath is coming. And we, we have the message to deliver people from it. To bring them into his salvation. Bring them into his kingdom. Be salt and light in the world. Carry the message of Jesus Christ. Remember Lot's wife. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your love and your kindness. Lord, I pray you'd help these dear saints to be patient with my zeal, my stumbling over words, that your message would be clear in every one of our hearts and minds, that we would know what you were saying to us individually this morning, that you'd help us to share that love, Lord. To have that urgency. Maybe it would be inappropriate to preach hellfire and brimstone out in public to certain people, Lord. Our desire is to win people over. Help us to have the right message if it's hellfire and brimstone or if it's deep, compassionate love, Lord. Help us to take this message, the message of deliverance to the world around us, to share it with passion and compassion that we would see your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you would like.